and turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. Our text for this morning is verses 10 through 19. Before we look into that, let's pray. God of heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus asking you now to open our eyes to um, your word. Help us to see that this message is not just meant for those who lived nearly 3,000 years ago, but it's meant for us today. Help us then to read it and to understand it for your glory and our good. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about 17, I was headed home on a cold, wintry night. And of course, I was driving my dad's car. That's all, you know, the car we had. And uh, I started speeding up, and suddenly, before I knew it, I was spinning around in the road. Um, and in a blink of an eye, I was slammed into the snowbank with the car facing the opposite way it should have been. So I got to some house. This is before cell phones now. I got to a house and called my dad. And my dad came and he got the car out of the ditch and we went home. The question is, what would happen next? Well, my dad was gracious. He reduced some of my driving privileges for a period of time. But some days later, my dad came to me and he said, okay, Tim, we, we got to talk about this. Let's, let's spend some time talking about what happened the other night so you know what you can do to prevent that from ever happening again. That's what you might call a teachable moment. It was a teachable moment. At that point, I was ready to learn the lesson, right? I wasn't in fear. I wasn't dreading anything. But it was a teachable moment because after a few days, I had a different perspective on everything. And so my dad was taking that opportunity to teach me. Well, as we come to our text this morning in the book of Haggai, the same thing is happening. A teachable moment has arrived for the people of God. Now, the people had repented of their careless attitude to God and had responded to his rebuke by beginning to rebuild the temple. And although they had been discouraged in the process, as we saw last week, God encouraged them with promises of his presence and promises for the future. And now they have given themselves to the project for another two months. Now it is December 18th, 520 B.C. Two months of hard work had elapsed since the last message of God. And so God sends another message by Haggai on that day to his people. And it says, a teachable moment has arrived. Let's consider the past and learn some lessons from it, as well as the future and what it can teach you as well. Because they've responded to God's rebuke, because they've given themselves to what God had called them to do, and are now in a, they're now in a position to learn. They've got a new perspective, a different perspective. And here's the lesson. Let's look at it. Verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and says, and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, he says to them, give careful thought to your past. And when he talks about this defilement here, I believe he's pointing to the past before they began this work. He's pointing to the past before they began the work in order to teach them a lesson. And I believe that because in verse 15 he talks about before you started the stone on stone, right? These things were true. And so he's talking about the past in verses 10 through 17. And then he looks to the future in verses 18 and 19 where he says, Give careful thoughts to God's abundant grace. So give careful thought to your past failure, right? He's not rubbing their face in it. He wants them to learn and give careful thought to God's abundant grace. Now, what is it that God wants to teach you in the book of Haggai? Here's the first thing. Give careful thought to your past failures. First, you need to understand the problem. What's the problem? We see that in verses 10 through 14. What was their problem? Well, God begins the process of discovery through a question and answer kind of a thing. You know, you do that with your kids. You give the question and answer thing to drive them to a particular conclusion. Well, that's what he does with them here. He starts this question and answer thing so they understand what is their problem. The first thing you need to see is that holiness cannot be transmitted. Now, he draws the picture that's in the law of a sin offering brought by someone to the altar. It was considered holy. Now, It was considered holy in the sense that it was set apart for a particular function. It's not holy in that it was the most morally pure lamb in the flock, that it behaved the best. So that's a holy lamb, let's give it to God. No, it was holy because it had been set apart for the function, for the purpose of being sacrificed to the Lord. It was set apart for the Lord. The very very core meaning of holiness is first set apart from something to something. It then became um, equated with moral purity. But at its very essence, it means to be set apart. And so this uh, sacrifice is holy because it's been set apart for the Lord. Now, part of that holy sacrifice was to be eaten by the priest or someone in his family. 
Only a priest or someone from the priest's family could eat of it. Nobody else because it was set apart. It was holy. Now, the holy priest, uh, with a holy sacrifice, he's taking it home for supper. This holy sacrifice meant for the priest and his family. He's taking it home. And, and, and as he's taking that piece of meat home, he brushes up against a pot of stew that someone is, is cooking uh, outside their tent. And he happens to just brush against that, that cooking pot. Would the stew or the bread or whatever that fold of his garment touched with the meat in it, would that become holy? Right? Would now that be set apart? And the priest's answer, well, of course not. It wouldn't be. Holiness can't be transmitted like that. Well, what about defilement? God asks. What about something that's defiled? The law said you were defiled by, one of the ways was by contact with a dead body. Right? A dead body. You were then considered unclean. You couldn't do certain things. You couldn't accomplish certain things until you were purified. So you, you would touch a dead body. You would contact defilement. Uh, if, you walked, if you then walked by that, that, that pot cooking the stew in it and you touched it accidentally, then what? Would that pot become defiled? And the answer is yes, it would be defiled. Unlike holiness, defilement can be transmitted. It's as if Haggai would say to you today, if you touch something with a dirty hand, it leaves a mark behind. But if you touch something with a, whole, uh, a clean hand, it doesn't leave anything behind. It doesn't leave a holy mark behind, does it? So think of it this way. Dirty hand is going to leave a mark. A washed hand won't. Defilement can be transmitted. Holiness cannot. So what's the point that God's trying to make here with this question and answer? You see it in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there. And what they offer there is unclean. It's as if the skeleton of the ruined temple was like a dead body decaying and contaminating everything. So that everything they offered to God was defiled. By their carelessness toward God and by their personal attitude of putting personal comfort ahead of the temple, they had become defiled in God's eyes. The economy was defiled. It wasn't producing what it should because of that attitude. Their work did not produce what they wanted, not because of impersonal economic forces, but God was using those things to show them that he had considered them defiled. They sought creation's blessings, the crops and everything else, uh, without loving the Creator. Even their religious exercises were defiled because of this careless attitude that we saw before, right? Their, their careless attitude, their apathetic attitude toward God and His presence, that then too uh, brought defilement. So, even then, now, now we didn't go into this, but even then when the temple wasn't built, they had an altar there and they were bringing sacrifices to that altar. The only thing that existed was the altar for those uh, 16 years. They would bring their sacrifices, but God says they're no good because of the defilement. They're not holy. They wanted the means of grace, the sacrifice, but they didn't want the, they didn't want the God of grace. They weren't interested in his presence. 
They sought redemption's blessings without loving the Redeemer. As one person has written, religion can only reflect your character, not change it. I think that's a good one to hang on to. Religion can only reflect your character. It can't change it. It's the heart that God wants, not mere religious service. So in this teachable moment, God says, the problem that I saw in the past was this constant defilement. We say, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? Do we have a problem with defilement? And I would say yes. And already I can hear the objections, even though you're not mouthing them. I can already hear the objections. But do we not live under the new covenant where all of us are made holy in Christ? I mean, didn't we just read? Didn't I just read a few minutes ago from Hebrews 10 that the sacrifice Jesus offered once for all perfects us? Right? It perfects us. We're, we're holy in the sight of God. And that is true. That is absolutely true. But yet Jesus himself and the apostles also recognize that we, in this state of being accepted to God, can still con- contract defilement. I mean, look at what Jesus says in John 13. Okay? Let's turn to John 13. You all know the context here. This is the Last Supper. Jesus has done something radical, something that no one does. I mean, uh, people would come into a home and they were offered water to wash their feet, you know. But Jesus does the unthinkable. He wraps a towel around his waist and he starts washing their feet. I mean, even if they just showed up, they would wash their own feet. But in this situation, Jesus starts washing their feet. This is wild. So let's pick it up in verse um, 6, okay? He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Good old pious Peter. Jesus answered, you know, I love Peter. He's really pious, and he's, he's always telling Jesus what he's doing wrong. Have you ever noticed that? I love that. I mean, in a good way, I love that. All right. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Do the whole thing. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So what he is saying is here, You've already had a bath. You just need to deal with this defilement here, this, your dirty feet. All right, so Jesus in this parabolic way is, is telling us, yeah, you can still get defiled. I mean, you're still bathed, but there's still some problems there, right? There's still some defilement. And the Apostle Paul believed that. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us, what? Purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Right? That's what he tells us. There's still things, and, and notice, and he doesn't say you do this independent of God, but what he is trying to emphasize is you've got to be involved in this whole process of 
dealing with the things that can contaminate body and spirit. Well, how do we contract defilement then? The kind that Jesus is talking about in Peter, to Peter. Well, the same way these people did, by our spiritual carelessness. Our spiritual carelessness. Listen, can I tell you something? You should never get in a pulpit to preach until you've preached to yourself. And I look at that and I say, okay, we contract defilement the same way, but our spiritual carelessness, and I'm telling you right now, I'm thinking about this past week and thinking if Jesus wasn't my hope, I wouldn't be here. Because I'm afraid too often I am spiritually careless. I don't devote myself to the things of God like I should. And that's how we contract this kind of defilement. By our lackadaisical attitude towards the worship of God. Right? Um, uh, we, we sometimes are just kind of lackadaisical towards the worship of God. Uh, by putting our comforts and pleasures before the worship and service of God. Just like them. We can become defiled. I'm, I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, where we are told to put off the old man, that is the old man of the former realm of which we are part. Now as a Christian, we are commanded to put off the ways of thinking, the habits, the, the allegiances, the behavior of the old man of the old realm. We're told to put those off. He says, put off the old man, which is being corrupted, by its deceitful desires. The desires that are at the root of every sin, right, corrupt us. Desires that I want that I'm going to give in to that desire that says, yeah, you'll be fulfilled if you do that, right? And it's sin, and we know it's sin, but we believe the lie. we're, we're, We're corrupted by those kinds of desires that would lead us astray. Um, Other places that the New Testament talks about, um, we, can, we can contract defilement. Now, I'm thankful, for example, in Hebrews chapter 13, that all our praises, because we've all been praising God today, right? We've been praising God today. Does he accept it? Yeah, through Jesus, right? So I'm very glad for that. Nevertheless, it doesn't take away from the fact that even as the, the, the people of God who have been purchased by Jesus, we still can contract defilement, and we need to deal with it. Um, So as you look at your past failures, or as you look at them now, recognize that part of the problem is often contracting defilement. We have to see it that way. But when looking at your past failures, God also calls you to recognize his work in it all. All right? Verses 15 through 17, what does he say there? Um, Now then, consider from this day onward, if you look at your Bibles... Um, there's a marginal reading, another way of, of translating this, where it says, um, now then, um, consider this day backward. <laughs> In other words, look to the past. I want you to look at your past, and I want you to see some things. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. All right, what can you learn here? Well, God was working in the midst of their failures by discipline. He was working by discipline. The answer to their defilement was discipline. 
He says, give careful thought to those days when you were disobedient and defiled. Before you exhibited repentance for your carelessness, what happened? Here's what happened. You didn't have what you thought you, you could get. Your, your crops were not what they were. The wine didn't produce what it should. None of the things were producing. You remember he talked about in the first chapter, you have holes in your purses. It's like you never have enough money. Well, um, the issue was not inefficiency. It wasn't just bad weather. It wasn't just agricultural technique. It wasn't just inflation, but God's chastening hand in those times. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Here was God's discipline. He was working with them. And you need to give careful thought to the fact that in order to get your attention, God often touches you where it hurts. <laughs> God touches you where it hurts. I remember my dad, when he disciplined me, he touched me with my mom's, um, what, what was a washing stick. I don't know, if, you know, most of you aren't old enough to remember that. You know, there were these, these sticks that women used to use to put the, the laundry. There were these um, washing machines that just had the agitator, and you threw the clothes in, and you had to push them down with this stick. I, it looked like a club to me when I was a little boy, but that's what my dad used on us. And that hurt. I recall when my, when my boys would not pick up their, to, their toys, Right? They wouldn't pick up their toys. They'd be scattered all over the place. And we would tell them, you need to pick these up. You need to pick these up. You need to pick these up. Eventually, what? We threw them away. Or they went on the burn pile. Touched them where they hurt. And then when they got a few more toys, they learned to put them away. So these folks had been planting, plowing, building, and making money above seeking God. And so he put the pressure on them where it hurt the most where they were planting, where they were building, where they were investing, right? He put the pressure on them where it would hurt them uh, the most. Spiritual carelessness will produce pain, all right? Now, why would God put these people through pain? Is it because he's a mean, selfish God? Is it because he's a God who says, listen, you knuckleheads, I am worthy to be worshipped. Now get with the program. It's all about me. Don't you get it? Is that the kind of God that we serve? No. He's a God who loves us and wants the best for us. And he wants people discovering the true treasure and delight of devoting themselves to God. You see, when you devote yourself to the, to the Lord, when you are given to him, when you find him to be your treasure and your delight... Life is much better for you, right? Always remember this. God's glory can never be separated from your good. God's glory, it's never, serve me you knuckleheads because I'm worthy of the glory. No, it's that I'm worthy of the glory and when you give yourself to the highest good in all of the universe, what happens? Life. Life is better. Because now we're doing what we were created for. I can recall one of our boys who was very young, traveling in his car seat. He was very tired. He could hardly keep his eyes open. But boy, was he doing his hardest to stay awake. He didn't want to go to sleep. And so he was miserable trying to keep himself awake. 
And finally, after what seemed like hours to me of trying to convince him of the necessity of sleep, I had to apply some pain in the right place. And you know what happened? He went to sleep. And when he woke up, he was a very pleasant, very happy little boy. That was not cruelty. That was loving discipline so that he would reap the rewards that come only from, from obedience. And so it is with God. Look at Hebrews 12. We all know Hebrews 12. We all know this passage in Hebrews 12. Now, as we look at that, I, I feel compelled to say something. When Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, speaks about the discipline of the Lord, it's not speaking about, you've done something wrong, so now I'm going to discipline you. What he's saying is, anytime hardship comes into your life, anytime, it doesn't mean hardship's coming into your life because you've been a bad boy or girl. It's any kind of hardship in your life is discipline of the Lord. Okay? It's just discipline that is intended to do something, verses 10 and 11. Um, in fact, if you want to look at it, this all starts back at chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, and they were doing what was right, and they were suffering. And so he says, you're having your property confiscated because you identified with Jesus, and this is what God is saying to you in the confiscation of your property. Hey, you know what this says to you? The fact that they're taking away your property? It says, I love you. Okay? So, Hebrews 12, 10, 11, with all that introduction. For they disciplined us, our, our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so it is with God. He's not being cruel. He's moving in our lives so that we know what? The peace of righteousness. That our lives will be peaceful. And that we will have the, the happiness of holiness. Right? And so as you look at your past failures in your teachable moments... See God expressing his love through discipline. I can look over, what, 68 years now. I can look at the past and see all kinds of places where God was intervening with discipline or where God was bringing trials into my life in order to produce the happiness of holiness. And I can see his faithful care in that as I look back over all these years. So when you look back, you're seeing that God is exercising his discipline in order for your good. Now, having surveyed the past, now he looks to the future. In the last two verses of our text, verses 18 and 19. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Give careful thought to God's abundant grace. Not just the past, your failures of the past, but as you look forward, consider God's abundant grace. 
Now in verse 18, he shows his grace by granting them true repentance. It's true repentance because they were truly sorrowful over what they had done and they had now turned. Here's the fruits of repentance. They had now turned to begin doing what God had called them to do. They had truly made a turn. They had truly, the fruit of that showed that they were truly repentant. Okay? By the way, look at 2 Corinthians 7 for a moment. 2 Corinthians 7 gives us an outline of the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. Um, these are markers that I always want to, you know, when someone repents to me, I want to see, well, are these things true? But, you know, I also have to look at myself and say, are these, is this the kind of sorrow that I have? And so... In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So I can have a lot of sorrow. I can even have tears. But how do I know if it's worldly grief or godly grief that actually leads to a change of mind, of repentance? He goes on. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, every point you prove yourselves innocent in the matter. Now what he's saying here is this is what godly grief looks like. You want to clear yourself. That doesn't mean I want to show you that my record's clear because you're not. What he's saying there is to clear your record. What he means, I'll do whatever it takes to be rid of this. That's the attitude of godly grief. I'll do whatever it takes. He even says punishment, which is to say how do I know if I'm really repentant? If I'm willing to even accept the worst consequences because of my sin. I'm not going to try to evade it. I'll take whatever comes. That's godly grief. And they had that kind of godly grief. They did that and it caused them to repent. Everything they had done before, the sacrifices, the songs, the festivals, everything, were all empty religious exercises. Because that was all just a worship of convenience. But now he says, you're serious. You want me You're not playing religious games. You're seeking me. Remember what we've seen so far in this book. To build the temple meant we want God's presence. It's so important we're going to sacrifice to get that done. And you see his grace in providing for them. Verse 19. There's no seed in the barn. What's he saying? All of it is gone. You've planted it all. The little bit that you had before that you harvested, you've planted it all. And here they are, their hearts are pounding. What is God going to do with this? Right? Now, we've been guilty of neglecting him. We've been guilty as well of not seeking and loving our God. Sure, we've responded. But they're thinking, have we responded too late? Have we responded too late? And what does God tell them? You've not had any success in the fields, but hear me now. From this day on, I will bless you. Now, is this mere legalism? Is this God saying, since you're playing my game, I'll give you what you want? No, not at all. Look at, you know what's wonderful? Look at Luke 12 with me. 
Look at what Jesus does here. In this passage, Jesus is talking about meeting all our needs. Luke 12. I'll begin reading in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Now look, do you see what's going on here? We're in the same place. We're looking out and saying, is this going to work? Right? Am I going to have what I need? Like those people back then, what is Jesus saying? You don't have to be anxious about that. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet... God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, and they they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom." Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you see that? Fear Fear not, little flock. It's your Father who takes pleasure in giving you the kingdom. God doesn't strike a deal with you. He graciously gives you what you need When you say to him, Lord, I want you. I'm satisfied with you. I'm going to seek your kingdom. And he says, you know what? I'm going to provide everything you need. And besides that, the Father has been pleased or delights or takes pleasure in giving you his kingdom. Do you think about God that way? God delights in bringing you into his salvation in Jesus. He loves doing that. And so if he delights in doing that, he will surely delight in seeing that you have what you need. You ever think about God that way? Now again, I'll be honest with you, because I can speak forthrightly with you. In our Reformed type circles, we tend to emphasize the holiness of God and the justice of God, and rightly so in the culture in which we live. But we emphasize it so much, we forget these truths. We forget That God absolutely takes pleasure in giving you what you need and giving you the kingdom. He loves to do it. Isn't that amazing? He loves to do that. He gives you Christ and his kingdom and he takes pleasure in doing that. It is his joy. It is his delight. It is his pleasure. It is his gladness. It is his great desire to do these things for you. Now, so there's no deal-making going on here. God says that when you want him, as he reveals himself in Jesus, he takes pleasure in giving you his kingdom. And so with these folks. He'd love to do that for them. There's no seed in the barn. What's going to happen? I'm going to give you everything you need. 
I'm going to give you everything you need. You're satisfied with me? I take pleasure in giving you all the things that you need. So give careful thought to God's abundant grace. Give careful thought to that. Right? So look, God... Has God, your loving Father, brought you to a teachable moment this morning? Is this a teachable moment for you? In those kinds of moments, he says to you, if you give careful thought to the past, you're going to see defilement. Okay? Be honest. That's what you're going to find. But do not lose hope because God loves you and he will work in you and on you by his chastening hand to bring you to the place of holy happiness. The holiness that produces happiness, joy. That's what God is after. And in those those moments, he says to you, but remember my grace. It's more than abundant in the face of defilement. For For those who seek me, I delight in giving you all that I have in Jesus. So what God says to you then is, learn the lessons. Consider them carefully and learn. Father, thank you for your word. We're thankful that this prophet can speak to us. We're thankful that because of Jesus, we can count on your delight, on your pleasure, on your goodness to us. We thank you that because of Jesus, we've been delivered from a wrath that takes its retribution for our stubbornness and our hatred of you. And Lord, turns the difficult things of life because of Jesus into loving discipline intended to move us toward righteousness and the peace that comes with that. So God, we thank you for the lessons that you teach us. Help us to learn them well. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.